Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We have the pleasure of hosting our program this evening in the stunning new building that houses the University of Iowa's art collection. The UI Stanley Museum of Art opened to the public in August of last year and has welcomed thousands of visitors since that time. For those who saw the prior building, the building that used to house the art collection, you will notice when you walk through the current museum that there is a fresh curatorial approach to the collection. But what may not be as immediately visible is the new vision for the museum, but that's what we're going to explore tonight. We'll also look beyond the surface of some of the museum's most prized works to better understand their origin, their importance in the larger constellation of artistic movements, and their ability to engage the viewer in the language of artistic expression. To get us started, it's my pleasure to introduce Corey Gundlach, just next to me here, the Curator of African Arts at the Stanley Museum. Welcome, Corey. And his colleague, Steve Erickson. Pleasure to meet you, Steve. Steve is the Manager of Design, Preparation, and Installation here. Big job, especially in a brand new building. But um, yeah, so let's talk first about the long road that led to the creation of this very special building. Steve, I guess you've been around as long as I have or longer as a community member, and you know the prior building. And you were here after the flood in 2008, helping to figure out what we do to safeguard the pieces and to house them temporarily until we had a new building. So yes, I was here for about uh, three to four years in the old building. Closer. Yep. Um, and uh, yes, I was I was part of the flood evacuation, um, and so it, it was. Um, so the new building is something that I've been I worked on in my mind for a solid fourteen years in my head, <laughs> because when something like that happens. <laughs> and you lose your sense of what your job is and your purpose, you think, well, okay, in the future, there will be this new place. That will be great. So, yep. Yeah. So I was told that you actually worked with the architects, with everyone designing this building, really relatively consistently throughout the process? Uh, I did. Uh, we went, so there was a couple, diff uh, there was a change of directors, mm -hmm. um, basically three times. So initially, Sean O'Hara was the director. Yeah. And then Jim Leach was the interim director, and then Lauren became the director. So I was on the design project. Originally, Sean and I traveled around with the architects, expressed kind of what we wanted in a building, related to kind of conveying what, it, what our collection was and how a building would suit the collection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we can get into how pieces are placed within this new building, a juxtaposition and so on in just a minute. But what are some of the main things you needed to keep in mind as you were envisioning this space? We're thinking about height and light and um, glass exposure and all these various things. And there was a budget. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so there, yeah, those things right up front, we had some, I mean, with architects who battle, they want to put windows in places that maybe aren't appropriate for mm -hmm. a collection. So mm -hmm. there was some fighting about that. But um, scale was interesting. I, uh, um, because our collection, you know, in most collections show in buildings that are scaled too large, I think, mm -hmm. because the objects are made for 90% of them are made for a home, normal home size, yeah. right? And then you put them in a room that is much larger, that has 16-foot ceilings, and they look different. They, mm -hmm. They're not, they don't, they're, you don't experience them the way you would, and you often experience that when you go see art in someone's house. You think it's so much more comfortable mm -hmm. than a museum is, right? Mm -hmm. So I, that always was in my mind, that mm -hmm. I wanted it to feel like 
this should feel like comfortable the way I want to experience art. Mm -hmm. And one thing that happened that was interesting, so in terms of budget, our ceilings were, they were a foot and a half taller at one point, and it was cheaper to, <laughs> to drop the ceilings down, but I think it, mm -hmm. it was perfect. We lost one thing, which Corey solved by laying one of the masks down horizontally, because when they design that, they look at the very tallest object, and then they say, well, we have to accommodate that, right? But then, so the one thing is accommodated, and everything else suffers a little bit, so... Um, those were things. The lighting, in, in my experience, lighting is much easier at a, a slightly lower level. Again, because you bring the light down to a more human level, you don't have something mm -hmm. way up there that you're seeing also because the angles become different. So right, there was right. a lot of things. It was, it's unusual for someone like me to be involved in the process in that way. Usually it's the architect is, yeah. our architects were very accommodating. Mm -hmm. it, it was very nice to work with them because they were what do you really want? They were working with us. I think they were very lucky to have you who you know the collection and you know uh, how it should feel in the end. I think mm -hmm. they were lucky to have you. Um, could we talk just very briefly about what happened to our collection during those 14 years before we had the new building? Um, well, most of it was stored in Chicago. Mm. And then it, it moved over time to the Figgy. We made an agreement with the Figgy to store our collection. So initially... We had about a week when the flood was going to happen and the insurance said you have to evacuate the building, which was good because we were, we wouldn't have known, to, we wouldn't have thought to do it. So um, we did manage to get everything either out of the building or up off the floor. Mm -hmm. So there was very little damage to the art other than a very high humidity environment, which caused problems. But yeah, I mean, I was literally there the last day before they threw us out of the building 10 minutes before we were putting things up higher. Mm -hmm. So it was really like the very last minute. So we were lucky in that way that we got, um, you know, preserved the work as well as we did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately, Lauren Lessing, the director of the museum, couldn't be with us today. But I have read, of course, a number of her interviews and statements about the museum, and she talks about a new vision, really making this museum on this campus part of the academic experience in a way that mm -hmm. perhaps it wasn't naturally so much before. Mm -hmm. um, Corey, could you talk about that a little bit? What, uh, what Lauren and the rest of you are aiming at with this museum? Yeah, um, I think it's first important to recognize the sort of history of approaches that we're departing from in order to create this new vision and uh, the, the legacy of, of using the collection a certain way and, you know, beginning with a new building and with largely new staff, with exception to Steve, who has this great institutional knowledge. Um, I think that, um, speaking for myself in terms of the way I've curated five of the installations that make up a part of the overall inaugural installation. I've focused on the African collection, obviously. Um, I think it may be the only university art museum in America that devotes half of its galleries to the African collection. Um, I've focused on the artistic quality in terms of separate genres for three installations. And then two other installations are about two sub-collections within the African collection in conversation with each other. And the last of which is about thinking about African art within the world in conversation with art and artists from anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of my new vision as a curator of the African collection, I'm looking at African art in conversation with the world rather than a purely continental approach to things made and used on the continent proper. Mm -hmm. um, that is a specific departure from the history of, of using and, and displaying the collection here. 
So it's not as geographically bound. Um, and also there is a, a great legacy of using the African art collection here within the project that's known by many here, the Art and Life in Africa project, that first arose in 1985 and um, was used at least seven times here through various exhibitions. It was the leading paradigm for interpreting African art within the cycle of life rituals that um, have come to dominate the interpretation of historical African art, I think, globally. Um, and that sort of approach, I think, has um, had its heyday, so to speak. And, um, you know, considering what people are interested in knowing about African art today isn't so much about that approach that's been the focus uh, for museums and scholars for generations. Um, so recognizing what that has brought to this collection and approaching it um, differently, um, and by that difference, I think you know the, the clearest departure is placing our African collection in conversation with, with things from around the world to talk about global relationships um, instead of something that's just internal and, and exclusive to the continent. Um, so that's definitely something that I'm bringing to the collection that's, that's new. And um, I can't speak to my colleague Diana Tweet's approach, but I know there's an integration there of, of um, you know, global interactions that are the reality of art, um, whereas historically there's been a very compartmentalized approach to art that's part of you know area studies in particular, um, and that that's you know tied up in our own training. My own training in African art encourages me to look at objects in a certain way specific to the continent. But you know I think that the public is hungry for something um, different that that recognizes global interactions in the world today, and so that's largely what we're doing with the collection now. Mm -hmm. So let's talk for just a moment. We'll stick with the uh, the African collection, and maybe you can describe. There's, I know, there's one section called uh, "History Is Now." Is is that what it is? History is always now. Such an interesting and true thought. And and there is a large section devoted to gorgeous textiles, mm -hmm. and then some of the pieces that I remember from display in the other museum, in. Uh, masks and, and other African objects there. Um, tell us what some of the special pieces are in the collection. Sure. Um, so among the three installations that are devoted to the strengths of genres within the African collection, pottery, masks, and textiles, I usually call attention to the only ceramic pot in the Stanley collection of African art, which is a Mangbetu-style pot um, that is unique because it's the only pot in the Stanley collection of African art proper. But it's also one of the few African pots from Africa that involved a collaboration between a man and a woman. Oh. Most historic African pots are made by women. There's a few exceptions, but um, they're rare. But this particular pot belongs to a period in um, Northeast Democratic Republic of Congo um, during the colonial period when men saw an opportunity to collaborate with female potters to meet European tastes in pottery. Oh that are much more anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. um, and so they basically created these heads and attached them to pots made by women and basically accommodated European interests in art um, during you know, those early colonial encounters in that, in that context. So I, I call attention to that for those two historical reasons. Um, within the, the, the mask installation, which is titled uh, About Face, African Masks in Iowa, there's two objects in particular, one of which is the first mask to enter the museum's collection, and that is a Yoruba-style Gallaudet mask that 
um, Roy Sieber, the first person in America to get a PhD in African art history here at the University of Iowa in 1957, acquired this mask for an exhibition he hosted here on campus in 1956. And the mask that's on view in that installation is from that exhibition. So it really lies at the inception of African art history in America in general, and is the genesis of the African collection here at Iowa. So it's very significant historically for that reason. Um, so I call attention to that. Um, and also, you know, in conversation with a recent acquisition of a mask by Hervé Yumbi. He's a contemporary artist from the Central African Republic who lives and works in Cameroon. And he creates work about the role of African masks within a museum context. And by that, I mean he approaches it from both an anthropological and artistic perspective. So he includes the mask as an object itself. He includes a video of the mask in performance. He writes labels for audiences that are more in tune with anthropological or artistic approaches to African masks. And he includes the shipping crate, the customs documents, and a field photograph of the mask itself, all within this sort of multimedia installation that also includes an invitation to loan the mask back to him, Hervé Yumbi, so he can keep the mask, the mask active in Africa during performances. And so um, I like that mask, not only because of its visual power and beauty, but because it tests the limits of what museums can do, not only with African art, but with art in general, in terms of keeping it active um, you know, in the real world. Mm -hmm. And so I've yet to find a museum that has agreed to loan the mask back out um, but I think it's important because it asks us if we can do this, and if not, why not? Um, so it creates these really interesting conversations about the limitations of, of museums and, and what we can do with our collection. Um, and just to keep going with other recent acquisitions in our textile exhibition centering on cloth, uh, the recent acquisition of a textile by Abdullah Konate. He's a contemporary artist based in Bamako, Mali. Um, arguably one of the world's most important artists, um, if not in Africa. He was the center of attention during, during the um, Descartes Biennale of contemporary African art in Dakar this summer, um, where he was greeted by the president of Senegal and a large armed entourage mm -hmm. at a major exhibition devoted to his life achievement. So we have his work upstairs, Rouge Kente et Monde, um, that he recently completed and we acquired and is on view now. Um, so there's, there's multiple works by contemporary artists from the continent that I'm also introducing. The, the strength of our African collection is primarily historic. And so another departure for this new vision is to embrace contemporary artistic practice, um, not only among artists from the continent, but within global Africa um, at large. And so you see um, a larger focus on, on those artists as well. Mm -hmm. Well, so you, you bring up an interesting um, an interesting point, I think, regarding the artistic value of one of the pieces you have, but also with these pieces that are, are part of life, in uh, particularly in Africa here. Um, they are used objects. They have a cultural meaning and understanding. Um, what do you have to deal with in your own mind as you're thinking about acquiring these pieces in terms of giving it the proper cultural um, uh, recognition and setting. Sure. Um, well, one of the things I find so attractive and, and just um, powerful about Yumbi's work in particular is that he's already packaged that question up in the work because he has basically received permission by elders of the Kungang Society in Cameroon 
to formally integrate his mask within funerals and initiation ceremonies within this society that has existed in Cameroon for generations. So there is this formal agreement and respect for this contemporary artist, knowing that he's going to incorporate this mask in a quote unquote, you know, highly sensitive cultural context that will be later extracted and shown in the art world as an art object. And so, I mean, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about African art is that there's this um, really clear divide between these two worlds as if, you know, nothing in the spiritual world can cross over into the marketplace. Yeah. Um, I think that um, that's, a, that's a misrepresentation of the complexity of reality of the art world in general. Um, but that's bound up in this, this multimedia work that, that shows the mask within these contexts involving an actual um, a funeral or an initiation ceremony for members of this society and this full recognition and respect for this artist that's integrating this object into museums to ask these questions mm -hmm. that we're talking about mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Steve, uh, we get the work and it's a wonderful work and you have to figure out how to display it and what color the wall should be behind the textiles or I suppose you work with curators to figure out just how these things can be best displayed? Um, so it's, in, um, my job is entirely dependent on who I work with in some ways. <laughs> so I have a long history with Corey and over time you develop a relationship of trust and support. And so we, we collaborate in terms of, I think this color might work. I think this, I, I usually come up with the colors. Sometimes I'll suggest my own idea entirely. And sometimes he'll suggest one The like the choice of green in the central gallery was my suggestion. And it, it, it was reflective of his notion of, we're kind of turning the cannon on its head. And, the, and there's certain, there's certain you know, traditions of how you display African art. And a tradition is like dark reds, and there's certain kind of dramatic things. And I wanted to do, basically turn that idea on its head. It's like, well, I've been in Africa. It didn't look like that. Mm -hmm. It was like, I, it was plains where I was. It was like bright. It was sunny. Mm -hmm. It was like, so it was like, why are we represent, why are we creating this fantasy reality of, of what that is and how that feels and where these things may have existed? So mm -hmm. that was part of it. The gray is, I mean, so there, there's always an aesthetic and then there's just mechanical ideas. Textiles have to be lit in a very low level of light. So the darker you make the walls, the brighter they appear to be. Yeah. So with a very low light level, you can make things. I mean, I really like the color, mm -hmm. the dark gray. I just <laughs> thought it was really yeah. nice. <laughs> so, and then there's, um, you know, so some rooms, so for instance, the green room, the objects, you, have, you look at every object and think, am I going to ruin anything? Mm -hmm. And that room had a flexibility to it because of the relatively limited palette, and there was a big pink fish, which mm -hmm. I thought, well, this will look great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then yeah. the other ones, everything, everything was okay with the green. And mm -hmm. sometimes you have color, you can, you can overwhelm the art. And my rule is, you should never see what mm -hmm. I do first. Yeah, you, it's always to support the art and make it look better and create an atmosphere that is reflective of the idea. Mm -hmm. So I'm always conscious of what, what idea is Corey trying to convey and work with, and then how do I reflect mm -hmm. that? Um, well, you mentioned the pink fish, and we remember when this pink fish was created here on campus, and oh, we yeah, had yeah. a chance to speak with the, yep. with the artist. But I don't know that everybody who walks through that gallery, they may not realize that it has a real functional purpose. If it were used in yes. life outside of yes. the museum, mm -hmm. it is a... 
It's a coffin. Coffin. Yeah. 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 A fantasy coffin. Uh, yeah. Or he could address that better. Because <laughs> he hired the artist to do it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, I, I bring that object into that exhibition that focuses on the Saunders collection, the Stanley collection, because it's about expectations about what African art is. And who thinks of a giant pink fish mm-hmm. when you ask someone what African art is? And so um, I just led a tour through that, that exhibition today of a, a, a dance class. And we talked about this and um, how very few people know it's a coffin until you look at the label. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's very interesting to discuss its life history, which includes a previous um, edition of World Canvas with mm-hmm. the artist mm-hmm. and you know, making this work to be shown in a museum and how does that relate to the history of these objects in, in Ghana in the mid 20th century? But yeah, it's um, that particular exhibition, Steve's choice of green was absolutely perfect because I just, I wanted people to walk in that space and yeah. just feel differently about what you're looking at. And so that was a, a perfect, mm-hmm. I think, compliment to that approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so while uh, I have both of you here, let's expand out into the other part of the museum as well, which holds very notable pieces that many of us may be aware of, the mural that has come back home after traveling, I don't know how many different places, seven or eight international locations? Yeah, at least. Yep. Yeah, I traveled yeah, yeah. with, I went to almost all of them myself. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So that's a piece by Jackson Pollock that really is is very well known and makes this museum um, uh, extra, extra special, but there are many, many other incredible pieces in uh, the, the uh, non-African part of the museum. Uh, could we talk about some that you think are most, most interesting or most surprising or uh, draw the most curiosity from viewers who come to the museum? I wonder about the Gibbons piece, for example. Maybe one? one, the Sam Gibbons piece. The Gilliam. Uh, Gilliam, excuse yeah, me. Yeah. Gilliam, yeah. The um, on the on the death of. Well, Martin yeah, that was King. interesting. So, the the Pollock was always in our minds when we designed the rooms, mm-hmm. and so that room that the Pollock was in was was scaled very particularly, knowing the Pollock is this long. We did in the old building. We had the Pollock, and there was like a, some extra space, and then we stuck something there, and we didn't. We didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, there's a there. There was a room I visited in. Uh, there, it was a it was a museum additional building related to the Prado that used to uh, house Guernica, and Guernica was it was all by itself in a room, basically one wall, and it, it, you kind of came into it from the back, and there was mm-hmm. a sort of theater of uh, of approaching it, and that was kind of always in my mind, like the Pollock should somehow feel like that, but. <clears throat> Anyway, in the design process, because of the way things worked out, the Gilliam is actually the first thing you see, mm-hmm. and then you sort of turn and see the Pollock, which is sort of, a, you know, there's other things in history besides Jackson Pollock, which sure. we were suggesting, but also, um, well, Jackson Pollock's mural was meant for a very narrow space, and actually, it's, it's not at its best when you're... 40 feet away. It's at its best when you're like eight feet away. Mm. And so it gives you that sense of you can go into the room and then you see that significant piece. But also you, it tells, obviously mm. the history of influence goes the other way because Pollock comes first. Mm-hmm. But it makes you see it in, in a reverse direction. And that room is full of all all kinds of expressions of a, abstraction. And then what's now gone is there was a parfleche which was a Native American mm-hmm. thing that was related to our Leon Polk Smith who was a Native American abstract painter 
who is obviously comes related to Mondrian. Mm. And then there's other things in that room that kind of pick up on Mondrian's color scheme. So I'm mm -hmm. not the curator, so I'm talking for yeah. her. And I would probably get in trouble. But So I didn't make any of those choices. But I'm just saying, I'm recognizing sure. how those things existed. And then also there's a ceramic piece that has, you know, painterly mm -hmm. elements. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of like saying these things that we think, and we've done that. The whole, the whole museum is intended to do that, to sort of level like there's the way that museums have been divided up in mm -hmm. the past. So emphasizing ceramics in almost every room, yeah. which is like the, we had, you know, historically high art, you know, craft. We've made all those mm -hmm. distinctions. It's like, no, mm -hmm. these things are all existing in their own space. And I was very conscious of that in terms of you need to light things equally, give things equal prominence. So that was always in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the design. One thing on the same topic is I deliberately placed a focus on the textile collection as a threshold for those that get off the elevator yeah. to, to see textiles as the first thing rather than masks and figure sculpture, which is the sort of conventional mm -hmm. African art reference, um, just in terms of how we juxtapose uh, right. you know, the galleries. I wanted yeah. people to experience that. Put, put a prominent spotlight on it. Mm -hmm. So you see a relationship between an African textile and a Marston Hartley. Yeah. Um, so that was deliberate for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's also that idea, you, so you don't, also there isn't a path, for it, we're not reading the book one way necessarily either, yeah. right? So you walk off the elevator, you can go, you can make the circle this way, you can make the circle, but you're going to, it's a circle as well, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a no, this is, the story starts here, it ends here. We're right. not moving through time right. in the way that people would, historically moved through time. Mm -hmm. Nobody's in the basement. Well, I was curious. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, you know, there's a lot of museums you go to. All of the Western art's there, and then there's a mm. little room downstairs, and they have their, you know, whatever it is. Right, right, right. right. Uh, so I was curious about the acquisition time for some of the pieces that by artists who are maybe... Um, more and more well-known today, for example, Kusama. Mm. Um, there's yep. a beautiful, really great red piece by Kusama up yep. there, and, and she seems to be in every magazine over the last 10 yes. years. You know, she's yes. very, very big now. But you got her long before that. I think it was the 70s when it was acquired? Yeah, the, um, yeah I think if you looked at our, our collecting history, we were forward in that way. I mean, yeah. I think there's more an emphasis on collecting underrepresented groups now. But I think that, that there's a long history of that for, mm -hmm. I mean, that probably if you went back far enough, we weren't doing that. Sure, well, sure. Nobody was. But, I mean, for sure, in the by the 70s, people were being interested in collecting, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and more broadly. What proportion of the pieces the museum holds, would you say, come in as gifts as opposed to those things that you, you purchase? Is, is there any? I don't know if you know how that I couldn't say an exact now. number, but yeah. most of them. Most would be gifts. Most would uh -huh. gifts, yes, yeah. and especially our, you know, especially a lot of museums like ours were founded on a couple, the Stanleys, yeah. is you know, and the Elliots, who you know, a wealthy patrons that collected a large mm -hmm. group of objects that were you know representative of certain periods in time. Mm -hmm. um, it's, there's Some always ones. yeah, there's always only so much money. Yeah, yeah of course. sure, sure, sure. Um, well, there was one other area I wondered if I could talk to you about, and Corey, you might be the one to go to on this. Um, we hear about repatriation of works. Um, has there, uh, I imagine people in your position, curators, are always thinking about the provenance of a piece, and I'm sure you 
try to only get pieces where you can see clear provenance and, and uh, so on. But we read about, there's another um, question about a piece at the Guggenheim now, I know, that is being claimed by a family that uh, had its art stolen by the Nazis. And um, how, how does that all work in a museum like this? Have you had occasion to return anything or to get into discussions about repatriation? It's a great question. So. Um I am currently in the final stages of planning the return of two objects that have been formally deaccessioned from the museum because I had the opportunity to work with the museum's first curatorial assistant for provenance research. Um, his name is Mason Kelm. He's a law student. And he um, helped me during the early, during the outbreak of the pandemic. Um, he and I were usually alone in the office together at the OMA. Um, working on, um, we focused on objects in the African collection linked to the Benin Kingdom, yeah. which was um, attacked by British colonists, um, military officers, and commercial agents in 1897. Um, the palace was burned to the ground, and thousands of objects were dispersed throughout the world among museums through auctions. And so um, the Stanley Museum has six objects associated with the Benin Kingdom, and so Mason and I worked together, and um, Mason really deserves the credit for positively linking two objects among the six to the siege itself. And um, through my own research, I discovered an artist that I did not realize was a member of the royal family. Hmm. Her name's Peju Lajiwola, and her quilt upstairs is now on view. And so I approached her as an artist and, and also as a scholar because she, she published a book called 1897.com. And in this book, um, it, she talks about just the whole phenomenon of restitution and its legacy specific to the Benin Kingdom and the history of claims for objects in museums all over the world. And so um, I was really moved by her artwork and the power of her claims and the documents that she published in that book. And so I reached out to her um, and she connected me with um, a person that is now the, the formal representative of the King of Benin um, to make um, a plan to return these objects to the King himself, the Oba of Benin. Mm. So um, luckily um, and, and gratefully, you know, routing these two objects through the University of, of Iowa to get them formally deaccessioned. Um, we're now preparing to to ship them back to Benin City, mm -hmm. Nigeria, so they can be returned to where they rightfully belong. Yeah. So the the larger context surrounding this, I mean, you're absolutely right. It seems like every week you see something in the news, and it's part of a larger global recognition about the the urgency of ethical conduct for collection stewardship that just wasn't as peaked as it is now. Um, and so. Um, Provenance research is very time-consuming, and because it's so time-consuming, it's very expensive. And there is federal support for provenance research of Native American ob objects relevant to NAGPRA, but for African art, there isn't. Um, Germany has robust federal funding for provenance research because of its former colonies on the continent, for example. But in America, uh, museums need to rely heavily on private support. And so um, I'm happy to say that the Stanley Museum of Art is currently pursuing one of those opportunities to develop a more robust program for provenance research on the collection we have here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, before we break with you two folks, um, 
What is your personal goal for the visitor experience? When someone comes here for the first time or for the 20th time, what do you hope they're going to feel? What do you hope they're going to see? Uh, I would hope that they feel welcome. That was my goal. Um, I, I think every, even somebody like me who is an artist, who's lived with art, you still go to a museum sometimes and feel like you're a little, like, on a stage, yeah. right? A little uncomfortable. So every, everything that I wanted to do had to do with be welcoming in terms of all, all categories. And I think especially class, because that's where you really feel it. I mean, you meet people who, they say, have you visited the museum? Oh, no. It's that, that's yeah. too scary. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. but it's free. You just walk right. around. Right. But no, right. it's too frightening. It's like, well, that shouldn't be. And so I think some of it, I mean, I think the future is also addressing that even more, I think, where we bring in, I think people have to feel familiar with things. And I think we've made some progress in that and bringing things, making things more prominent that might feel familiar to people next to things that, that mm -hmm. might not feel familiar. Right, so I think that's the way that you, once you see, well, well, that thing I know, so then this is kind of like it. Mm -hmm. This thing's kind mm -hmm. of like it. It sort of opens your sensibilities to thinking about being comfortable with other things. Yeah. And what would you say, Corey? I think um, in terms of, of what I hope that people will experience here is just the contagion of joy. I mean, it's a very, you know, gut level sort of aspiration, but I mean, when I look at Odili Donald Odita's surrounding, you know, at, at the 11th hour, you know, prior, prior to the opening when the stress was high and the deadlines were crashing down, and I'd walk in and I'd see that thing and I would just breathe in and like, I was so uplifted. And I want people to share that experience here because it's all over. Mm -hmm. The beauty and the power and the joy, I want people to share that with, with people that they care about. Yeah. Well, in our next segment, we're going to talk with two folks who are involved in all of the outreach to, to little kids, to community groups, and so on. So we'll, we'll learn more about that. But I want to say thank you, Steve Erickson. Thank you. Yeah, and, and thank you, Corey. Okay. Please give a hand to Corey and Steve. Thank them. Uh, so our next guests are um, Josh Siefkin, uh, there at the far end, who's the Associate Curator of Education for the museum, and Catherine Reuter is just next to me here. She's the Academic Outreach Coordinator. And thank you both for uh, stepping in here to talk a little bit with us. Uh, as we've all heard in this last segment, we talked about the new vision for the museum and, and that it be made accessible to community members, accessible to university students, to faculty, to academic research and whatnot. It always has been, but I think there's a sort of renewed um, vision for um, outreach, which not everybody likes the word outreach, but, you know, connections that go beyond the museum itself, and, and both of you are working on that. And Catherine, uh, I'd like to start with you first. How is it possible that the art collection can amplify or deepen the understanding of a student of say history or anthropology, law, a nursing student, what do they find in this collection? Sure, um, I don't mind the word outreach because okay, it good. is uh, part of my job title. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I work to integrate the collection into course curriculum and as you mentioned, um, there's applications to any student in every field, including STEM fields, surprisingly. Um, I think that the skills a student would use to unpack the visual language of a painting the elements of a piece of art. Um, those are the skills they use when they unpack the meaning of a poem or the themes of a novel. It, and it also helps with um, communication skills. So um, having a class together and discussing a piece of art together, um, 
they can work on communicating what they see, what their interpretation is, and mm -hmm. listening skills. We've had some really creative uses of the collection. For example, there was an anatomy class. Um, their professor gave a lecture on lower limb anatomy. And then they looked at pieces of art that represented um, human figures and the lower limbs. And then they used those um, images to decide what position the limbs were in or the joints and the muscles that were engaged. Um, previously, they would have done that work that workshop or that um, exercise with just a worksheet from like photos from the internet of like yoga poses, right? Mm -hmm. But then here they're using, um, you know, quality artwork to yeah. to look at limbs. Yeah. That's an example of a creative use. Mm -hmm. Obvious applications to history. Um, you look at something from the past, you can consider the culture and the society that made it. Mm -hmm. um, and even something like law, what are the legal um, implications of repatriation or mm -hmm. copyright law and issues in art museums? Yeah. And uh, so if, uh, if a professor reaches out to you to say, hey, I'd like to bring the class by and we're kind of studying this, that, or whatever, do you use only pieces that are currently on display or do you reach into the, uh, into the archives and see what you can pull out? Yeah, great question. The Stanley has over 17,000 art objects in its collection, and we don't have enough wall space for all of those pieces. Mm -hmm. And we're lucky in this building to have a couple classroom spaces on the third floor, and our collections team is very generous, and I'll ask them to pull some items, and they'll put them on display for that class. And we call this a close-looking um, class visit of objects that are not currently on view. Mm -hmm. And it can be really fun because students don't recognize you know, the, the, the breadth, perhaps, of the art collection mm -hmm. here at the Stanley. And we can customize the class visit a little bit more. As an example, a class that I really enjoyed, um, an instructor reached out to me. They teach media and advertising. So do you have anything about art and advertising? Mm. And I was struggling for a little bit, but then I remembered that we have Toulouse-Lautrec posters. Oh, yeah. So we pulled those out. We were able to discuss the history of posters as, adver as advertising media, also the history of using celebrities to advertise things. Mm. Um, how do you make a compelling image for an event? So we've been talking about how do you advertise in downtown Iowa City for a band that's coming through, mm -hmm. make something compelling for people to, to want to attend an event. So that was a fun use of the collection, and we wouldn't have been able to have those conversations with just using the gallery spaces because those posters are not on view. Yeah, yeah. Wow, and so I understand that your position is actually a joint position with the library. So, so that's cool. Do you work with special collections? or? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I'm actually 60% employed by special collections and archives, ah. and so I get to use that collection as well to teach, which is... Mm really exciting, it's such a joy. There are some interesting cross-pollination mm -hmm. um, occurrences. For example, the Lil Picard collection. Um, this is an artist who donated her entire estate to the University of Iowa. Oh. Um, she was an avant-garde artist. Um, she turned. Uh, she would have turned 100 this year, so she <laughs> celebrated in, this, in the lobby with a little birthday party for her. We were able to bring items over from special collections from her archive um, here to the Stanley, and then, of course, there's a number of pieces on display in the inaugural show um, yeah. from that artist. So yeah. got to see kind of two sides of things that she produced. What kind of engagement do you get from the students when they come here as part of a class? It depends. It varies. I think early in the morning, if it's a little bit cold, and people don't really want to chat too much, which is understandable. Um, but we do, it's, it's a joy when students warm up throughout the visit. When I meet them in the lobby and there's kind of these crossed arms and what Steve was talking about, the feeling of being uncomfortable in a museum, I completely relate to that. But then when we get upstairs and I start asking some deeper questions about what do you see? What does this make you think or feel? And to have students um, reply and respond and the group kind of warms up and then we come to really deep conclusions or students might share things about themselves that they wouldn't have in a different setting mm -hmm. and that's a wonderful experience. Is this one of those times where you in front of the group will say there's no wrong answer? Oh I say that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes I say that yeah. quite often. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I want to get to Josh Siefkin, too. You have been here at the museum for quite a long time, but you weren't here before the flood, I understand it. You came in sometime after that, and, and you have worked with uh, K-12 uh, students and with community groups and educational outreach. Tell us about what you do. Yeah, I started a year after the flood. Um, I originally was part of the outreach program that we had here. So while we were without a building, we had a special collection of objects that was traveling all over the state. So um, during those, you know, almost 14 years without a building, we were taking this collection out to K-12 um, schools. And we were in Mason City, we were in Des Moines, um, we were in Burlington. Um, I heard you shout out to Burlington earlier. Um, we were in Burlington, Mount Pleasant, Sioux City, all over the state. I was sometimes um, spending a week in a hotel room with crates stacked up right next to the bed. Um, so that's what we were doing in order to engage uh, the students of Iowa um, without a building. And then um, the pandemic kind of accelerated the end of that program um, because we were uh, bringing, or we are getting ready to open up the building and start bringing people in. And mm -hmm. we have, um, we are offering tours um, right now to K-12 audiences. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot, right? You told me you thought it would kind of calm down after the big opening, and it has not. No, um, it has not um, calmed down whatsoever, and we couldn't do it without our group of, of dedicated docents. Mm -hmm. There are actually a couple docents in training um, yeah. with us tonight also. So we had a, a first group of docents that graduated um, right in July, and then we started a second class right around October. So right now I have a dedicated group of about um, 40 docents that are helping give tours we, because we really couldn't do it without them. Yeah, so tell me about the tours. How, how do you prepare anyone to talk about multiple pieces in this, in this very, very large collection? Yeah, so in, in terms of the, the docent training, the, the first class, just because the, the first, when the first class went through, we weren't even allowed in the building yet. So I was teaching them in the old Museum of Art, in the atrium, um, and we were hanging, um, you know, copied artworks in, on an eight by 11 piece of paper <laughs> and pretending we were in a gallery. Um, so that um, process took a little bit longer than we thought it would, um, but in the, in the new building where we can actually stand in front of the artwork and the galleries, it'll be a bit of a, a shortened process. But right now, the, the docent training is, it's about eight months long. Um, we meet twice a month for about an hour and a half for each session. And we go over everything from, I was talking to Joan you know, <laughs> earlier in the galleries, and I said, well, there's a trick to reading this label. Um, if you just look at this date um, on the accession number, that'll give you an idea of when it came into the collection. Um, that's something that we look at in the docent training. Um, it's about group tour management strategies. Um, it's about current educational theories and learning and teaching. Um, and it's really on the docents themselves to do the research um, because when we are going through these classes, we aren't, um, we aren't actually delving into, into the artworks. It's up to the docent to pick and choose. We don't use a scripted tour um, for our tours. And, and the reason why we do that is it's a much more engaging process to a K through 12 student, I know Catherine probably has experienced this too, when you're talking about the things that interest you, that energy you know, feeds into the group also. 
Um, so we really ask the docents, the only thing that we ask of the docent is to stick to the theme. And we have a couple theme tours. One is the collection highlights, which is a, a pretty self-explanatory tour. We have an African art tour. Um, we have a social justice tour. And um, I know I'm, oh, and Color I, Tour Red. Did you say Iowa Connection? And the oh. Iowa Connection. Hmm. Um, we just ask the docent to stick to the theme of that tour, but they pick and choose the objects. Yeah, yeah. And I'll add, if I may, mm -hmm. uh, that Josh trains the docent, docents really wonderfully in current museum education practice, which is less about lecturing a group of students or a group of um, visitors about, you know, what does this piece mean and the history of the artist and more about empowering an individual to interpret the art on their own terms. And so I've seen some wonderful tours where um, K-12 students or older folks and university students can put their own spin on mm -hmm. interpreting an object before they lean on maybe the curatorial label or knowing the name of the artist. And like, oh, I remember right. this is a big name, so it's important. Right. As opposed to making a personal connection with a piece mm -hmm. of art. Mm -hmm. Wow, so you mentioned a social justice tour. What are some of the pieces that would be the highlight uh, in that tour? Well, the Sam Gilliam piece, Sam of course, Gilliam. Um, Elizabeth Catlett. But I think the one thing that is often forgotten um, with social justice is, you know, you could talk about Grant Wood and the fact that he was mm -hmm. a gay man mm -hmm. in, in the late 1930s. Um, and so we really do leave it up to the docents on the tours. And so I know one of my docents talks about um, American Indian artworks on the social mm -hmm. justice tour mm -hmm. and how the U.S. government has treated mm -hmm. um, tribal groups. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, it, like I said, we just ask the docent to stick to the theme, um, but they can cover just about anything they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there ever a time when um, a docent or someone in the museum will say, hey, can you amplify what we know about this particular artist or this particular piece or uh, the idea, uh, the, the, the happening in the world that caused this artist to create a piece. Did they ever come to you for more library research, something you can, can help uh, fill in for background? A uh, quick little shout out to Patricia, the art librarian here at the University <laughs> of Iowa, because we have a separate art library as uh, opposed uh, uh. to the main library, yeah. which has a wonderful amount of resources on you know, monographs and catalogs right. for artists. Right. And right. so um, she came and gave a training to the docents on how to use some art databases ah. um, for their own research. But I, I think we all collaborate on staff in the learning and engagement team and the curatorial team. So we learn from each other about mm -hmm. the, our interpretations mm -hmm. of a piece of art. And I love tagging on, for example, to um, Corey's classes. Yeah. I, I like hanging in the background there. Always hear something new mm -hmm. um, from other people's teaching. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's, Can I yeah, add one please, other, please. One other thing about uh -huh. resources. Um, we also, um, in the, our third floor offices, it's, it's not accessible to the public, but we have a small docent library too that is, you know, that centers on, you know, books that yeah. are about our collection. Yeah. Huh. Well, it's great that now I think students are able to be together and move around certainly more than they could the last couple of years. I think there are some opportunities for students uh, and for, for principals to get some um, relief with funding for buses and things to bring the kids here. Right. Um, one of the things is we, we, you know, we're always free and open to the public, and that includes um, tours. Uh, one of the other administrative barriers um, often is busing uh, and the cost of busing students for a field trip. And we do have bus reimbursement available for K through 12 groups also. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's great. And the fact that it is a free museum um, obviously 
clearly makes it available to the whole community. Um, is there outreach into neighborhood centers and, and things like this in the Iowa City area? Yeah, um, we are actually working with a graduate student right now. She is part of the after-school programs yeah. with um, Gardner, Pheasant Ridge, um, Twain, and I, I believe there's two others. And those after-school programs are going to be coming in for tours, um, I think, March through April on mm -hmm. Thursday nights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Catherine, um, I was told that you are particularly good at sensing what students, university students, might be interested in at any particular time, whether it relates to something happening out there in the world or maybe it's... Uh, something on social media or whatever, that you, you have a nice way of keying into those things and uh, offering uh, opportunities to visit the art. What can I say, Joan? I'm relevant, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, you're relevant, yeah. <laughs> I would say uh, before I arrived in the University of Iowa, I worked at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee as a teaching assistant um, in history classes, mm -hmm. and I learned that not every undergrad is super excited about history. So I like to land on this, so what question, this why should I care? Yeah. And I kept that at the forefront of my mind in history classes, and I think that translates over um, to my work in the museum and also in special collections. Like, yeah. so what, why should I care? And that's something that can change based on what we're looking at, mm -hmm. but I always try to share a nugget of what in th what I get inspired or enthusiastic about mm -hmm. might not be the same thing that some a student's going to be enthusiastic about, mm -hmm. but at least they know that somebody cares yeah. about this issue or this topic, this time period, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I asked the prior guests what they hope the visitor experience would be. What, what do you guys have to say about that? Um, I, I mean, I, I mostly work with the K-12 audience, so mm -hmm. I hope that it's fun and engaging, but, you know, some of the best feedback that I've received on, on giving a tour is I'll hear from a teacher, well, this student usually does not participate, but they felt like participating. So giving a voice to students who sometimes don't have a voice mm -hmm. in the classroom, I, I mean, that was yeah. one of the biggest compliments. Yeah. And I hope that all of our tours can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's so lovely. I agree with Steve's points about feeling a welcome, making this space mm -hmm. a welcome and accessible um, institution. And for the main audience I work with, which is university students, I hope they feel empowered to approach art, to feel a sense of joy in art, and um, that they can feel like they interpret art, just like somebody who might have a PhD in mm -hmm. art history, um, mm -hmm. even a student who's, I don't know, taking, you know, getting a history degree, a bachelor's right. degree, that art is, it really is for everybody. Right. Right. Gosh, well, thank you both, uh, Josh Siefkin and Catherine Reuter. We really appreciate your being with us. And I'm afraid that we've come to the end of our program for tonight. So uh, please thank our guests. You guys can just stay there. Um, <laughs> But I also want to invite you to the next World Canvas, which will be held in the recital hall of the UI's Voxman Music Building on the evening of April 17th. Uh, that World Canvas will kick off the 2023 Provost Global Forum, whose topic is Contemporary Music from Israel. Uh, we'll preview the week-long festival of nine public concerts featuring music by living Israeli composers, and we'll enjoy live performances by festival musicians. Uh, so please mark April 17th on your calendar and join us for that program. I think it will be exciting. Uh, you can find more information on upcoming programs as well as links to archived World Canvas recordings on the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So for International Programs at the University of Iowa, I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.